All right. Well, good morning, New Valley. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, let's try that again. Good morning, New Valley. How are you doing? Woo. I, love, I love being with you. I love uh, gathering together on Sunday mornings. It's, it's refreshing. And we in Arizona, especially during the summer, we know like, what refreshing is when we come into air conditioning, right? And, uh, and man, the Lord's presence is just so refreshing and good. Just to reiterate what Amanda said, kids, welcome to service this morning, and it's great to have you uh, in our worship service, and I thought of something as we get into the sermon today. Uh, If you're an elementary kid, or junior high, or high school, or adults, you can do this too if you want. Um, I thought of something that you could draw today. So something that might help you as we go through the sermon today is, uh, is this. If you draw a picture of a beautiful garden, like the most immaculate garden that you can draw, right? And then I want you to draw a picture of weeds coming in and like invading that garden and taking it over, all right? So some of you kids, I've, I, I've done this before, and some of you kids show me the pictures afterwards, and I love it. And so if you do that, um, it'll make more sense at the end of the sermon today, what that relates to, but I just wanted to put that uh, kind of in your minds, kids, as we enter into the sermon today. Well, we are in a series right now going through the Gospel of Mark as a church, and we're, we're really kind of marinating in this Gospel. We're allowing the good news uh, of Jesus that Mark tells in his Gospel, which is recollections of Peter, um, to kind of pour over us as a congregation. And so we're continuing on that today. And so I hope you brought your Bibles. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 4. And we're going to be covering an, another large chunk of Mark chapter 4 this morning. Uh, last week, I, I preached, and I preached on the parable of the sower. And today, we're going to be looking at three different parables that Jesus shares and that Mark sort of puts into his gospel in a different order than Matthew and Luke do. Um, and actually, one of the parables today isn't even in Matthew or Luke. It's unique to Mark. And so we're going to be looking at this section of Jesus' teaching. Again, these are parables So these parables are kind of designed for us to to see a perspective, to see a window into God's creation and his world and his order, but also this window kind of like turns into a mirror, and it reflects back onto us our own brokenness, our own rebellion, uh, our own distortions due to sin. And so as we enter into this, let's let's prayerfully do so, um, asking God's spirit that inspired this text to be written to speak to us powerfully this morning. So Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21, uh, I'll read and you can follow along in your text. And he said to them, this is speaking of Jesus, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as If a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. 
But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. So um, several years ago, my parents um, that lived in Iowa for 30 years, I grew up in northern Iowa, several years ago, they moved here to Arizona about four years ago now. And uh, Elizabeth and I and our family, we moved here in 2008 from Minnesota. And so there was a good chunk of time where um, we lived apart from my parents. And I'm an only child. And so my grandkids are, or my grandkids. (laughs) Couldn't just pass that one up. My kids are my parents' only grandkids. And so that time, it was about, I think it was about five or six years that they lived in Iowa while we lived here in Arizona, it was really hard for them, really difficult. And some of you here, you may feel that tension. You've got grandkids in other states, and so you you feel that. Um, Well, one year, my mom and the church that my dad was pastoring, unbeknownst to my dad, concocted this plan that for his birthday, they were going to surprise him by flying our family up to Iowa and having us kind of come in and surprise him on his birthday. They had planned this whole birthday party, and uh, everything was set, everything was ready to go. They were in the fellowship hall of the church, and uh, we were in the other room. He had no idea. This was like months of planning, and we heard one of the elders of the church kind of say, and Ed, uh, we have another surprise for you today. It's kind of muffled, you know, because we were listening through the walls. And he goes, we have another surprise for you today. And then the door opened, and we came in, and, and my dad just lost it, like he was crying, you know, and so happy, so overjoyed to see us. But I share this story because for the months that we went into planning that, my mom, like, agonized because she was like, I feel so bad keeping this secret from your dad. And I had to convince my mom, like, Mom, it's okay to lie, like, to dad. <laughs> which is just fun, like just telling your mom it's okay to lie. There's some just kind of weird irony to that. But there was a secret that we were holding on to, that we kept really close to the vest because we wanted that moment to be powerful and to be punctuated and to, be, uh, to happen at just the right time in just the right way. And so um, my mom did it, proud of her. She lied, so. But the first point today, the first parable that we're going to look at Um, has to do with this idea of the nature of the kingdom of God coming into the world. And the first point is just simply this. The the kingdom is is concealed for the purpose of being revealed. The kingdom is concealed for the purpose of being revealed. Mark brings to us this parable uh, of Jesus' teaching. He says, Jesus says this rhetorical question, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? Or under a bed and not on a stand? This is a rhetorical question because his audience, just like you, you know the answer to it. Of course not. You wouldn't bring a lamp into a room, light a lamp in this case, and bring it in and hide it under something. That's not the purpose of why you would bring it into a room. 
You'd bring it in to illuminate it. The whole purpose of light is to reveal what is there. And so when you think about why is Mark writing this, why is, rather, why is Jesus saying this? Why is he using this parable? He's essentially saying here, I am, I am the light of the world, as, as John's gospel tells us. Jesus is essentially saying, I am the light of the world. God's kingdom has come into the world through me, and I am the light which reveals how the world ought to be and should be. And we see this in the life of Jesus. We see that as he goes into the world, Strange things to our eyes take place, but rather, I'd, I'd, I'd reframe it this way, it's like light going into a dark room and we begin to see the contours of the room. So as Jesus goes into the world, as he ministers alongside his disciples, we see the power of sin being overcome. We see broken bodies restored. We see a dead man rise to life. We see even a paralyzed man walk, as we covered several weeks ago, we see a blind man receive his sight. We see even evil spirits that were oppressing and possessing people removed and cast out, right? And so we see this light that comes in and the power and the potency of the light of Christ. As Jesus comes, this light shows what the room's really made of. It pushes the darkness out as it goes along. We celebrate this at, uh, at Advent, the beginning of the church calendar. We celebrate this with five candles and as we begin to light those candles for each of the weeks of Advent, we are doing something that is visual, but is, is deeply representative of the light of the kingdom of God, the light of Christ coming in and breaking into the world as we get progressively um, brighter and brighter, leading to the Christ candle of Advent. The purpose of his coming, the purpose of Jesus coming in, was not to conceal the light. Hear this parable. It was to reveal the light. He says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor, he says, is anything secret except to come to light. The kingdom of God, the kingdom was concealed. It was hidden in that present time. It was hidden for the purpose of being revealed, being manifest, come to light at the right time. Ultimately, through the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's kingdom is put on display, which ultimately points to the day when Christ will be the light that will illumine the cosmos, right? And so this is the purpose that Jesus, Jesus is teaching. He's saying the light has come, not to be concealed, but to be revealed. And then Mark records Jesus' words. He says, pay attention to what you hear. He said this numerous times over this section. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that phrase, you might hear that and go, that sounds familiar. I, I think I've heard that somewhere else. Well, you have. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shares the parable of the talents. If you remember, the, the many men that were given a portion of wealth and Several of them took and like used that wealth for something, invested it, and put it to use, right? But one steward buried that talent in the ground and was punished for it and actually had his talent taken away, his wealth taken away, and given to someone else. And then this phrase is used, this statement is used, the one who has more will be given from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and there's a, there's a key element of this that I, I want us to hear this morning. 
as we hear Jesus' words, as we pay attention, as we seek to listen, and that is this idea and this reality of stewardship. When you think about who you are as a Christian, when we think about who we are as a congregation, it's so good and right for us to think of ourselves as stewards, as stewards. What does this What does this mean? This means this. You have been entrusted with the greatest treasure in the world, the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus has has come to you by God's grace. By faith, uh, you you have been able to grab a hold of this good news. And by God's grace, he's changed your heart to be able to receive it. And so I'd ask you this morning, how do you view your life in relation to this treasure? How do you view your life in relation to this treasure? Quite naturally, our minds should be directed to consider the ways that each of us, individually but also corporately, the ways that we are recognizing that this this light that has come to us by God's grace is not meant to be concealed. It's meant to be revealed. The kingdom that's come is not meant to be hidden. It's meant to be exposed and shared and let out. So if you have received the good news, you are in some ways implicated to share this good news and compelled even by his spirit to share this good news. The second thing this morning, the second parable, this is the point. The kingdom grows. It grows and develops by God's sovereign work, not our work. The kingdom grows by God's sovereign work, not our work. So Mark inserts another parable of Jesus here, and and these parables don't maybe necessarily come in the order that Jesus originally shared them, but each of the writers of the Gospels, they, they put these in to emphasize something. And Mark includes this parable here that that is not in Matthew or Luke account. It's unique to Mark. And so he inserts this parable where Jesus says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, similar to the parable of the sower, but but different in some key ways. He says he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So here we see this, this image of a farmer that's sowing seed. Last week we discussed the parable of the sower, and, and the focus last week was really on the soils, right? If you remember the kind of the four different types of soil was emphasized last week. Whereas in this parable, the emphasis is on the way that the seed grows. Um, the seed's growth, it remains a mystery to the farmer. Like the farmer plants, but he he doesn't know how the seed grows. It is a, it's a mystery. It's, a, it's something that he just he can't fathom. It's, it's uh, kind of like the popularity of the song Old Town Road. Like, I don't know how this song is so popular, but it is. It's a mystery to me, right? Um, and some of you are going to have to Google that or something. But it's a mystery to this farmer. Like, he's, he's planted this seed. He doesn't make it grow, but it grows somehow. This is true of the seed growing in the ground. It's true also of the kingdom coming and being established in the world. I think it's really key for us, especially as Westerners, 
And not every one of you in here is a Westerner. Some of you actually are here for a time from a different part of the country. So you might actually pick up on this more than a lot of us. But as Westerners, we've kind of been conditioned uh, on a certain framework to think about our world. Our world kind of disconnected from God. Um, and I'm even saying that to us as the, as the church in the West. Um, when we see something like a majestic sunset, beautifully ornate sunset with, with thousands of colors right in the sky, or when we see a prickly pear cactus that's blossoming and blooming and, and kind of in full array, uh, when we see a, you know, I don't know, pick your nature image, when you see a hawk come down and snag a mouse or something from the ground, right? It's just a marvelous display of power. When we see that, our, our culture doesn't naturally cause us to go, do you see this amazing thing in creation? That's God who's doing that. In our culture, we've kind of disconnected God. And even in some circles with, within Christianity, I think we've become kind of like deists who really have a robust idea that God has created the world he has, he's made the world, he's formed the world and, and shaped it, but it's almost like we believe that he set all these laws in place and he's like, okay, now the world's good, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set it kind of on its way and like a clock, I'm gonna wind it up and step back and let it do its thing. And even as Christians sometimes, we can see something like a sunset or a hawk or a prickly pear cactus and we can have this view like, oh, that's just kind of nature doing its thing as God set it to do way back in the beginning. But but scripture, the way scripture comes at us, it views God not only as creator of the world, which he is, but as sustainer of the world. And this is what I want us to, to kind of almost pause and listen to. I have a couple of psalms that I want us to think about and ruminate on. As we think about this farmer scattering the seed, he's, he's scattering it, watching it grow. It's mysterious, it's marvelous, and he marvels at it. And I think we ought to, in some ways, allow the psalmist to help us reorient our imagination and our thinking concerning the way God sustains his world. So Psalm 65 says this. It should be on the screen as well. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it, speaking to God. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain. For so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly. Settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. There is rich imagery here of God, not only God the creator, but God the one who works and sustains his wondrous creation. And the creation, as it kind of reverberates, praise back to him and joy back to him. It's a glorious image that the psalmist paints. And I think for many of our eyes and imaginations, we need to be redeemed a little bit to envision the creation not as just kind of natural laws doing their thing, but as God, the creator and sustainer, actively at work in the world. Listen to this Psalm 135. I love this one. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all depths. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings 
for the rain. I love that image, making lightning. Like, what would that be like to make lightning? I have no idea. But this is how the psalmist images it for us. God is making the lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. We live in a world not only created by God, but sustained by God. This world is held together by God. And if you were to think about it this way, if God were to kind of take his hands off of the world, everything would unravel and come apart. It is God who holds all things together. And this parable speaks to the sovereign nature of God working in the midst of his creation. Just as God is mysterious and intimately involved in every aspect of his creation, so he is at work mysteriously and intimately in the way in which the kingdom of God has come into the world, has broken into the world, the way in which redemption has come into God's good creation. And we should be clear about this. You and I should be clear about this. We're called to steward. Again, there's that word, stewardship. You and I are called to steward God's kingdom, not, not build his kingdom. God is the one who builds his kingdom. He is the builder. You and I are called to steward his kingdom. You and I are called to be witnesses of his kingdom come into the world. He is the one who makes it grow. He is the one who brings life to it. And I hope this maybe in some ways is kind of a double-edged sword for us this morning. For some of us on one side of it, I hope this comes at great encouragement to you. Some of you here may grow discouraged when in your faithfulness to steward what God has, has provided you, whether that's a, a, a family that you're discipling as a father or mother, whether that's a small group that you are trying to faithfully lead, whether that's a co-worker relationship that you're trying to share the gospel with, and you're trying to faithfully steward this, and you find at times you, you grow discouraged because you don't see fruit from that relationship. You don't see, you don't see what God is doing. Hear this parable. You're like the farmer that's scattering the seed. You're the farmer that's scattering that seed and you are entrusting yourself to the Lord. And you are saying, God, it's your kingdom. You're the builder. And so, God, I'm going to be faithful to say and to do what you call me to, but I'm going to entrust the growth to you. I'm going to entrust that you are going to do something with it that I could never do. Because that's kind of the, the warning side of this. Is that if, if you in your efforts and in your striving notice that there is a kingdom being built that is being established, that is growing by your hands, this is decidedly not God's kingdom. This is a kingdom you've made, a kingdom you've fashioned. And so I think this parable would also call us to, to a warning that our entrustment of, of this kingdom is to recognize that God is a creator and sustainer and we as his children, as his bride, we are, called, we are called to scatter the seed. But he reminds us that he is the one that grows the plant. He is the one who grows the seed. You, you hear this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Many of you, uh, those are a couple of your favorite letters, First and Second Corinthians. And Paul, right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a division in the church. And the church is, is they're kind of split between what they perceive as like Paul's kingdom and the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Cephas. 
the kingdom of Apollos, right? And Paul addresses this division, and he essentially says, it is not right for you to have this division as a church. You are not thinking about God's kingdom rightly when you do so. And he says, he says this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. Therefore, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who causes the growth. So this is the second parable of the three. The third parable, of course, is the parable of the mustard seed. The final point today is this. The kingdom, the kingdom of God starts small but becomes unspeakably large. This is where that drawing, kids, that I asked you to do is going to make a little bit more sense, just so you know. So this parable of the mustard seed, this is one that probably many of us are familiar with to some degree. Uh, This is kind of Mark records Jesus saying this. He says, what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth, using hyperbole here. It's it's an incredibly small seed, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, this is not a cute image, and I'll just say that to us. This is like, you might have seen like a Thomas Kincaid painting of this, he probably got it wrong, okay? This is not, sorry, any of you that like Thomas Kincaid, I probably offended you. Uh, but this is, this is not a kind of a cutesy, warm image. This is a jarring image of a mustard tree or a mustard bush. See, a mustard bush was, a, it was an, an obnoxious plant. It was, it was a, essentially, it was a weed that many farmers and gardeners would not want in their garden. And so in the reality of this, these trees, they would spread. They would take over gardens. And once they were established, they were nearly impossible to try to root out and, and get out. And you see this today, I think, with, with garden mustard plants or bushes. They're really hard to get out once they're established in a garden. And so there's this, there's this idea here. There's this pervasive dominance here that we need to hear. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that comes And the second piece of this says this, these large branches become a refuge for undesirable birds. What what does this mean? Well, the the image here has to do with a pest to the garden who are eating maybe the premature plants or picking at the leaves or pecking up the seed. These birds come and they find refuge in the branches of this mustard tree. And this jarring image, it shows us how the kingdom of God comes into the world. It comes in small and inconspicuous ways, but will grow and spread and invade in an extremely, to an extremely wide degree. And it will also attract what for many of these listeners were undesirables to its branches, mainly the nations of the world to seek refuge in its branches. Now here's an interesting thing. You and I live in 2019. And I thought it would be interesting for us to go, okay, what would it, we have a view of the mustard tree that Jesus was talking about that, that his disciples here did not have. And so I'd like us to, just for a moment, like almost in a way, look at the mustard tree for a moment from here back. What, what has happened? This small seed that was 
planted, what does it look like today in 2019? And so I've gathered some images of the five major religions of the world. And I want to walk through them sort of in reverse order. So from the, the, the fifth largest to the largest, which is Christianity. And these images show where these um, faiths are practiced and adhered to on the planet. And I want us just to kind of see some interesting Uh, see some interesting things. Consider the way that Christianity has attracted the nations. Have in mind the birds coming to rest, the nations of the world being attracted. Pay close attention to uh, this as we kind of walk through it. And so fifth, I don't know if it'll it'll come up here, fifth is Buddhism. Uh, And you can kind of see Buddhism is very concentrated on a certain section of the world, so the darker areas represent sort of the higher concentrations. The South Pacific region of the world is is largely where that is concentrated. Fourth is Hinduism. Hinduism is largely concentrated, as you can see, uh, there in India and uh, also in Nepal a little bit, and a bit also in the kind of the northern part, that small section of uh, Suriname, Guyana, I believe. So there's Hinduism. Third is irreligion. So this is... Uh, this is atheism or secular humanism, um, uh, which some of you may go, religion? Is that a religion? And I, I would argue, yes, it, it, it is a religion. It is a, a religion with a full set of practices and values and, and a faith, if you will. You see where this is concentrated, mainly in areas of the world that have been um, impacted by the Enlightenment or areas that are maybe more developed or more privileged parts of the world. You don't see this as prevalent on the continent of Africa. You don't see this as prevalent throughout the Middle East or even into the more Far East regions of India, China, and those areas. Second, anybody know what is second? What do you think? Islam, yes. Islam. You can see that Islam is mainly kind of concentrated or targeted right there in the Middle East, an area uh, that many kind of missiologists, they call it the 1040 window, an area of, of focus for prayer and missions and also in uh, Indonesia. And then you have Christianity, 2.2 billion. I mean, these are according to the Pew statistics, right? Christianity, which if if you look at the map, covers uh, a great majority of the world, being represented in each of the major continents to a significant degree. And you consider not only the economic differences in some of these areas that Christianity has come in, from the rich to the poor, but also the variation of culture that's represented here. Now, the two areas that you see that are, that are a little bit weaker in terms of the way Christianity is impacted are the Middle East, which, as we know, much missions effort and focus has been targeted there for good reason. Many of the Christians there are in very sensitive areas and, and maybe can't speak as openly about if, if they are a Christian or not for statistics like this. But the other area is, is China. And as I was looking at this, I I came across a quote that I wanted to share with you about China, that as you think about China, you can be be praying for them. This comes from a public policy think tank named the Council on Foreign Relations. They said this. It's not necessarily a Christian organization, but they said this about China. They said, China has witnessed a religious revival over the past four decades, in particular with a significant increase in Christian believers The number of Chinese Protestants has grown by an average of 10% annually since 1979. By some estimates, China is on track to have the world's largest population of Christians by 2030. 
And by God's grace, I pray that that's, that's true, that the church flourishes in China. But we can see from this, we can see that this small seed that was planted in an inconspicuous way in the first century in Christ has grown into an ever-increasing tree, like a mustard tree, providing refuge for the very nations of the world. It's pretty remarkable. But I think even, maybe even more amazing than this, when we consider the gospel, is the reality that not only has this gospel had a global impact on our world and is continuing to have a global impact, but this gospel has had a deeply personal impact into the depths and the darkness of the human heart, your heart and my heart. So let's take a moment to think about maybe these three parables again in light of the gospel of Jesus. So this small seed of the gospel, it's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. So think about that first parable, the lamp, the spirit who shines the lamp of the gospel into our hearts, regenerates and, and causes us to be able to see the goodness of our Savior. The second one, growth. This small seed grows. It grows in our hearts only by God's attentive love and care. Not by our effort, not by our strength, not by your position or your ability, only by God's sovereign care does it grow. And we marvel at that. And lastly, this tree, this, this small seed grows ever larger in our lives. And, and many of you in this room can attest to the way in which, and we, we praise God for this, the gospel gloriously spreads into our lives, affecting every facet of who we are and actually transforming our very identity from rebellious sinners into children of God who can cry out, Abba, Father, to him. This kingdom has come to us. This kingdom has come to us through, through Christ, through Jesus. It's come to us particularly through Jesus' incarnation, him taking on flesh and dwelling among us, fulfilling all righteousness. It's come in his death on the cross. The light has broken in to even the darkness as Jesus took our sin on himself, as he absorbed God's righteous wrath that was directed towards you as a sinner. This kingdom has, has come in glorious ways through his resurrection loosing the power of death itself and freeing even the creation from its bondage to decay. It's come in his ascension to where, as Hebrews tells us, Jesus is even right now interceding for us, his bride, the church. New Valley, our faith rests in the light who has come into the world. Our faith is established not by our power, but by God's grace alone. And so let's hear this good news this morning. Let's take in and hear these parables and let's be reminded that God's kingdom has come to us and God's kingdom one day will fill the earth as the water covers the sea. Let's pray. God, we, we sit here under your word under these three unique but unified parables. 
that speak to the way in which your kingdom has come to us, the way in which your kingdom has been made manifest to us. And God, we marvel. We thank you and we give you praise that you are the one that is at work, that you are the one who has come and has done what we could not do. So God, help us as a congregation as we continue to think about, as we continue to to ruminate and allow this text from Mark to to marinate in us, in our hearts. Spirit, would would you help us to know what you're calling us to as your stewards, how we are to be faithful to this good news today, Monday, Tuesday, the rest of this week, and with the entirety of our lives. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Our entire hope is centered.